You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. The originals of those translations, I still feel that, yeah, a lot of those differences and subtleties I, I missed. Um, and so I want to compare that with my current work, uh, where I am reading primarily uh, sources in Tajik. Um, so my current work, I'm, I look at kind of uh, conditions of labor and ideas about modernity that were developing on Tajik collective farms uh, in the Soviet Union, primarily um, in the post-Stalin period. Um, and I can explain this in more detail during the Q&A if anyone is interested, but I'm basically looking at the path of, of cotton monoculture's development in Tajikistan and the ways that it affected the countryside. Um, and I'm interested in how Soviet planners and party officials saw both saw labor as potentially transformative for rural Tajiks, but were kind of, there was kind of a contradiction in, in their goals because they also pushed for ever-increasing amounts of cotton production, um, which served as a barrier for some of those modernizing goals that they had originally imagined. And I think, and, and, and I'll stop here with this, but I think this has to do with um, an underappreciation of, of what actually goes into the production of cotton. Um, and so to, to do this work, um, I've actually started reading issues of Tajikistani Sovieti, which is the main Tajik language newspaper of the Communist Party in Tajikistan. And I'm reading issues um, from the late 1950s. Um, and there are numerous examples of the kind of thing that I'm going to describe in the next slide. But I want to point out one specific example to kind of demonstrate what we gain when we start reading Tajik language, or and I think this would apply to uh, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, uh, Uzbek. Um, I think Uyghur is something is is a different case, but we can talk about that too. Um, but just to to show um, in very concrete terms what we can gain as historians, and I am speaking primarily as a historian, um, when we uh, look past simply Russian language periodicals. Um, So, uh-huh, this is what I did not think about. Um, you can't, anyway, this is a PDF, not a slideshow. Um, so, in the course of reading these newspapers from the late 1950s, I found that most of the newspaper coverage, especially in the fall, is centered around cotton growing. And not just those articles that I'm looking at, but the entire newspaper. Um, we see a lot of rhetoric kind of about um, dedication to um, the cotton harvest, and this specifically focuses on rural workers, asking them to dedicate themselves to do whatever was necessary to grow ever-increasing amounts of, of cotton, and also sometimes other agricultural products, but primarily cotton, that were to be delivered to the state. Um, and in this way, the newspapers of Tajikistan probably don't actually differ that much from Ukraine, Belarus, or other uh, parts of the former Soviet Union where you would see, um, you know, a, a heavy emphasis on agriculture. But what I found is that there are a few ways in which the newspapers do seem specifically Tajik, or at the very least, they seem to be playing an important role in forging a kind of simultaneous, um, or to, to, to make um, a Soviet Tajik identity which seems to be seamless. Um, you know, you can't really separate Sovietness from Tajikness if you're reading these newspapers. They are presented as being one and the same. And I have a really good example of that here. Um, so in the first, the first um, excerpt here, which comes from Tajikistani Sovieti in 1957, I believe, um, we see uh, a dobaiti or a rubai, which is a traditional kind of quatrain of song poetry that was very common to uh, the Persian-speaking um, Tajiks of Central Asia. And so I'll read that now. Bi azmin durus tu sayi kamil, 
Castro Murod Nashalan Hasil, which generally translates to something like, without proper intentions and total perseverance, uh, one cannot reap the benefits of the harvest. Seems very Soviet, right? Um, I thought so too, until I started to transcribe it into Farsi, actually to share uh, with some Iranian colleagues, just to, to see what they thought about it, to see if it seemed familiar in any way. And when I plugged that into Google, I found out that actually this comes from the 15th century um, from a Sufi poet named Hussein Vais uh, Kashifi, um, his Morals of the uh, Beneficent, uh, which you can see down here. And um, if, if you can read the Arabic script, so Bi Azme Durust Castro Nashavad Morode Hosil. So it's it's a little bit different, but very close. Um, there's no denying that, that it's coming from the same place. And what I thought about, well, this is really interesting um, because there's no mention that, that this comes from the 15th century Sufi poet. And what I was thinking is like, did the censor even know that that, that was the original source of this? Um, so it could have been, it could have uh, gone under the censor's notice, but also my suspicion is that this was partially an attempt to appeal to rural readers who could have actually been singing this song um, in a way to, to attempt to make both a local identity and a Soviet identity appear seamless for those readers. So the content sounds very Soviet, but then it's, it's presented in a very familiar form um, into this, this poetry, which actually sounds nice when you read it. Um, and I've, and I've talked to my Tajik friends and, and they agree. Um, this is, this sounds nice. This sounds, uh, like something very familiar. Um, and so these are just some ideas, you know, this is just an example. Like I can't, I can't prove any of this and obviously it needs, uh, more exploration, but I, I do think, um, for our purposes, this does reveal uh, for historians, especially those focusing on Soviet history, uh, the usefulness of using these Central Asian languages. Um, you know, I, I, I spent a really long time um, studying Tajik literature through Russian, and I never found anything that was quite as interesting as this. Um, and one more thing I wanted to add was, um, and this will come up in, in the later part of our discussion, had I not been reading this in Tajik, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to connect with Iranian colleagues and Tajik colleagues and talk about this and, and ask new questions and actually learn quite a bit more about the area that I'm studying, um, which I think is an important point, actually. Um, so with that said, I'm going to kind of turn away from my own research experience and talk more about um, the benefits of you, the benefits and challenges that we see in using Central Asian languages in our research. And for this section, once again, it's going to be very heavily focused on um, historians. But I think for, you know, we can talk about what kind of research you guys want to do. I think you can also take some something away from this. And so for this section, I actually reached out to um, basically all of the historians that I could think of who, who use Central Asian languages in their work. And I asked them about the benefits and challenges of using it. And then I kind of compiled um, some of the answers that I heard and, and tried to synthesize a little bit. So the first overwhelming thing I heard was that um, using a Central Asian language in your research in Central Asia is crucial for, for gaining access to new and different kinds of sources and data. It's a good way to connect with people um, who you otherwise wouldn't wouldn't be able to converse with. And this is especially the case um, if you're moving outside of um, capital cities. So if you're thinking about doing anything like anthropology, sociology, um, even economics, this might also be really important for you. Um, another historian um, mentioned that that while that we should be a little bit careful about how, how we're approaching these languages. He said, or the sources that we find in these languages, he said that they were different, but not necessarily more truthful sources, that they present their own um, range of problems, um, but they can also be 
very useful in, in, in bringing in new perspectives into our work, especially as historians. And finally, another distinguished scholar um, working on Uzbekistan said that nothing actually beats the thrill of working with these sources um, that people who are only working in Russian, Turkish, Persian, Chinese um, don't have access to. And um, yeah, we can talk about that a little bit more. And then finally, this is a little bit less related to the specific act of doing research, but kind of um, builds on my point from the last slide about connecting with other scholars is that it's really important that you can, for, for local scholars, that you can demonstrate your ability to use these languages. Um, it's important for connecting with new people and understanding what, what local scholars are doing um, and what, what they find important. And you'll find that this actually opens up a lot of doors. Um, so it's something to keep in mind. There are, there are times when using Russian or Chinese is important. Um, but overall, um, there are times when using the Central Asian languages uh, will be more useful to you. Um, so that's just another uh, thing to keep in mind. And so now we're going to turn to the challenges, um, which my interviewees were, were happy to talk about. Um, so the first one that came up among the historians was that there's always this problem of a lack of standardization of script that has changed for most of these languages has changed several times over the 20th century um, and even into the 21st century if you're working on more recent stuff. Um, and so that this can be a bit of a challenge, especially as you move further back. Um, so um, one, one way to potentially deal with, deal with this, especially if you're working with, with languages pre-1920, um, is to take some courses in standard Arabic or standard Persian um, and get familiar with that. There are good, I think, there's a really good Chagatai uh, textbook out there that, that also kind of serves as an introduction to uh, reading some of these texts, but um, you might even need to find, find a Persian scholar who can teach you Nastalik, which is like a very common way of writing the Arabic script in Central Asia. Or, you know, you, you can kind of, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but you can kind of assess um, what kind of standard, you know, script challenges you're going to face in your work and, and, and think proactively about how to um, overcome them. Um, if you're working in the Soviet period, you're mostly reading stuff on that's, that's typed on a typewriter anyway or a printing press. So you probably won't face these kind of challenges. And it's also going to be in Cyrillic for the most part. Um, but it just depends on, on what your area of research is. Okay, how am I doing on time? No. We had about five minutes. Okay, that should be good. Um, another person, and this is especially for um, those people who are not studying Tajik but are studying any of the Turkic languages, is um, and I think this was an Uzbek language scholar who was working on that, who said this, um, that you can't rely on your intuition that because of the ways that um, phrases are built in Uzbek language, um, you have to kind of retrain your brain to think in the opposite direction. And that this is something that just takes a lot of time. Um, one suggested way to deal with this was to um, try not to translate in language, but try to train your brain to think in the, in, in the target language. Um, another way was to start out by not translating individual words, but translating like thoughts or ideas or like set phrases um, to kind of overcome that tendency to, to translate from English first. Um, another person talked about differences between formal and informal registers. This is a huge problem for Tajik. Um, where the official Adabi um, register is very different than, than what you would find um, even in Dushanbe, but certainly as you go out to the villages. Um, and, and related to that, you have to kind of understand like when it's appropriate to use uh, different registers and in what context. So if you're, if you're talking to scholars in Tajikistan, you should be using Adabi because 
that's kind of customary. Um, and then finally, gaining proficiency. One historian who was working with Tatar um, mentioned that some frustration that people who had studied Russian for five years expected to pick up Tatar in just one summer. And she suggested um, that actually it was the other way around that, that becoming proficient in Tatar took more time um, because there are less resources out there, less points of reference. And in order to really appreciate those um, detailed kind of, yeah, like details of, of the language, um, you need to really spend time on it. Um, so in conclusion, coming back to our broader conversation, in our question and answer and, and in the coming weeks, you know, you're halfway through the program, I, I imagine by now, um, I want you guys to think about uh, what, what is the purpose of, of learning a central Asian language? What can it bring to your field? What can it bring to your field? What can it bring to your work? And how are you actively moving towards those goals? Um, what are your needs? What kinds of literacy do you need? When I'm working on these newspapers, it's not really important that my speaking skills are honed, um, but I do have to have a very high functioning level of literary Tajik in order to pick up on some of the nuances that you find in the newspaper. Um, I also want to later do oral history work, which means understanding the dialects and being able to switch in and out of the high and low level registers depending on who I'm talking to. So it's also up to you to identify what kinds of literacy you need, what are your goals, and how you can move towards those goals. Um, sooner is better. Um, it's best just to kind of start practicing these things. So if you plan to read newspapers, um, contemporary newspapers, you should be doing that now or at least trying to read sections of newspapers, do a little bit each day, um, and you'll, you'll find that, that you start to develop a literacy in that given genre. So once again, we can talk about this in the question and answer, and I hope, I hope um, that you do have some questions for me. And so I want to end by coming back to our analogy um, and thinking about uh, reaping the benefits of the harvest. Um, you should be thinking of your work in, in language learning as something that's goal-oriented. Um, and if you are the Central Asian farmer trying to reap the benefits of the harvest, um, we, we need to shape our learning to fit our own needs. Um, and this means using every tool that we have available um, at our, at our you know, demand. Um, so anyway, thanks again for your attention, and I hope that we can continue this conversation in Q&A and also um, beyond uh, today. So thanks. Nick, thank you so much for your presentation. Uh, and remind everyone you can share questions in the chat right now, and we will have um, our at the end of the presentation, but if you have something on your mind, definitely go ahead and enter it in the chat and we'll, we will remember it. Um, Laura, it looks the PDF still hasn't fully loaded. Are you able to share your screen? Uh, yes. So let me do this. I'm sorry, I'm experiencing a little lag on okay. my end. So if, um, if the audio feels strange, please let me know and I'll try to address that somehow. Okay. Does everyone see my screen? Yep, looks good. Yes. Okay. Um, so there are actually a lot of points of confluence in Nick's presentation and mine, especially in the, the first portion of mine where I'm talking more about um, kind of my, my path uh, to Kazakh language learning and then beyond. Um, so I'll, I'll try to um, like reemphasize some points uh, that Nick brought our attention to. And then the second part of my presentation will be more focused on my research that I'm uh, currently writing up. I'm um, in the dissertation writing phase of my uh, PhD and so. Uh, hopefully within the year I'll be finished. Uh, this is the title, the working title of my 
PhD, Deserving Daughters, Martyred Mothers, the Role of Reproductive Politics and Good Women Within Gendered Social Programs in Kazakhstan. And here's just a quick um, outline of what I'll be going over. So as you can see, the first part of my presentation will also go over my research path um, in terms of how SESI fits into my, my overall goals and uh, my doctoral research, how that relates to my or anthropological research in general and what I see as a focus on reflexivity and like positionality within the field of anthropology. Um, and then also the importance of Central Asian language learning in terms of embeddedness and connection. Uh, it's vital for uh, anthropological research. Then the work that I've done since um, I finished SESI. So I did SESI in 2017. And that was the um, between the second and the third year of my PhD program. Um, and so now I'm a uh, like I finished my fifth year and I'm about to enter my sixth year of my program. And um, so I'll discuss how, like what SESI kind of set me up for in terms of um, my research, but also my continued uh, language study. And then more about my research itself and the types of implications that I see um, potentially, you know, like larger themes, but also like uh, implications to perhaps even uh, like broader social or phenomena that are happening globally now. Okay, so um, part of my research path is I um, actually, so I, <laughs> I, I guess like anthropological research, uh, like I said, uh, has this focus on reflexivity. So this is, you know, like looking at the position of the researcher in the research and how like who you are and what kinds of things you bring to the table affects what you're researching and um, what type of data you might be collecting. So uh, for context, I first came to Kazakhstan um, when I was eight. So I was <laughs> much too long, young to be, you know, like starting my PhD or like thinking about language learning. But my parents, who you can see in these two photos, um, are archaeologists. And so they took me to Kazakhstan to conduct archaeological research. Um, and so I've been going, I, I lived in Kazakhstan for about three years. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents put me into local public school. Um, but at the time, that school, uh, it was in the then capital of Almaty. Um, so this was before Nur Sultan became capital. And that meant that. Um, like typically a lot of the schools were Russian speaking. And so I learned Russian uh, in elementary school for three years. And then I continued going back with my parents throughout my childhood. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to show you that like one's research path, the path can actually be, you know, super long uh, and start from your childhood. Uh, so here I just have another photo of how um, SESI kind of like fit into my overall uh, trajectory in terms of what I'm studying and my research interests um, and also obviously my life. So from this uh, school in Almaty, which was called, called school number 35, it was a gymnasium um, for mathematics and language, um, to SESI. And that was my group for, uh, elementary Kazakh in, uh, yeah, in 2017, we started out with four um, students, but this only has three of us. And um, so, yes, I, I went, I maybe followed a path that um, Nick alluded to, which is a lot of people go into Central Asian studies, maybe having like already having mastery of say Arabic or Chinese or Russian. And I am definitely one of those scholars who started with a, a strong foundation in Russian. And then only after years began my Kazakh language study. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in Russian and post-Soviet studies. Um, I got my master's degree um, 
in Russian, East European, and uh, Eurasian or Central Asian uh, studies. And then it was only when I was, uh, I finished the first year of my MA and I was, I, I took Uzbek because they didn't offer Kazakh um, at my university. Uh, but then like it was only in my postgraduate program that I was like, oh, I should think about um, the importance of, like really emphasizing the importance of Central Asian language study. And after my one year of Uzbek, I, um, my Uzbek professor actually left um, my institution. And so then I went to uh, Madison and I took Kazakh. Okay, so after I did the intensive Kazakh program, it was incredibly helpful for setting me up for my research, um, especially because as part of anthropological ethnographic research, typically um, people are advised to spend over a year, ideally about two years doing field work. So I did 17 months, which is about like middling um, in terms of field work length, but um, after studying at SESI, I then applied for the American Council's ERLP program, which is Eurasian Languages, uh, is it Eurasian Regional Languages program, um, which is in Almaty. And I was the only student studying uh, Kazakh in the summer, but here I am with the students who are studying Russian in Almaty. Uh, that's to the left. And then after I did a second summer intensive uh, program, which was in intermediate Kazakh after SESI where I did elementary, I then continued for the remaining year and some change that I was in Kazakhstan taking individual one-on-one uh, -on -one lessons on a bi-weekly basis um, with one of my professors who I had had in the program. So this is through Kaznu, which is a local university, the Al-Farabi Kazakh National University in Almaty. Um, so since SESI, I, this, um, SESI really set me up in, um, in order to do my doctoral research in a much more like engaged in critical way than had I only come with Russian knowledge. It potentially would have been possible for me to conduct my field work only using Russian um, because I mainly worked in Almaty, which is the largest urban center in Kazakhstan. Most people like uh, speak Russian on the, like in the streets, the scholars speak Russian for the most part. Um, although that's somewhat changing. Um, and you will typically hear Kazakh more on public transportation or um, if you're in home settings. Uh, I found, as I mentioned here, that Kazakh really gained me this, this wonderful entree to um, other research sites and then to home spaces. So on in the photo on the right, this is a um, the engagement party for um, this woman who I met through my research. This is at one of the field sites where I was working. So um, all of the greetings and uh, all of these very kind of like traditional uh, like presentations of food and wishes were conducted in Kazakh and had I not known Kazakh and presented myself as a continuing student of Kazakh, I think it would be doubtful that I would have been able to be privy to such things like you know, this engagement party. Um, and then on the other side, this is another social program that I was involved in uh, with the, the organizers of the program, which is, um, a charitable organization that was gathering funds to um, feed senior citizens in different uh, suburbs of Almaty 
bread and other kind of like um, weekly baskets of food necessities. And so um, I met them through this whole network that I developed, which started actually um, by my uh, language learning in um, like at, at Kaznu, the Al-Farabi Kazakh National University. And through those people and other connections I had, um, I just like continued to broaden my, my network and I was able to participate in uh, charitable activities and events like this, which um, as I tell you about my research, it'll be more clear why I'm interested in these, these events. Um, so here I, um, I wrote this really long kind of um, research question and I was like, wow, it's been, it's been actually a really long time since I, I tried to like verbalize a, 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 um, a research question in, you know, for my doctoral dissertation research, uh, because I feel like right now I'm more like writing individual chapters or thinking about my research in different ways, but I tried to um, write it out in this way for you all. How do conceptions of reproductive citizenship circulated in the public and promoted by the government about the role of women in contemporary Kazakhstani society shape and potentially limit the type and accessibility of social and welfare programs that are available for women and girls? So basically the question that I'm thinking about here is like there are all sorts of different programs that are um, that either charitable organizations or um, NGOs or government-run programs, like social workers or um, like local businessmen put on that are specifically geared at helping what they determine to be like at-risk women or girls. Um, so I am, my, my dissertation research is looking at how um, these different services are really gendered in specific ways in how they imagine like what a deserving uh, person and recipient of these services are and um, like who gets access to these services and it's often tied to one's reproductive status. So being a mother um, or being a f future potential mother is one of those factors that seems to put someone in a category of um, someone who needs to get access to certain services and needs to be protected by the state or by other social actors. Um, so my methodology, as I already mentioned to you all briefly, was I was doing multi, uh, well, 17 months of embedded research in different uh, multi-sided locations. So this means that I was uh, regularly, continually over the process of months, visiting various crisis centers and shelters for, as they call it, um, like women in difficult life situations. So these are typically women and their children who've experienced domestic violence and so are either seeking legal aid, um, some sort of like uh, housing resolution, or they are actually living in the shelter for a period of up to six months while they um, try to figure out what to do next. Um, another one of the field sites that I worked in were mommy homes. Uh, so this, uh, these houses were, are basically also shelters, um, but they're for young mothers. So unmarried women who don't have the support of their families or, um, their partners and the state or like basically this organization identifies these young mothers in uh, maternity wards and they see that they're they're alone and they don't have any support and so they say listen um please don't give your child up for adoption uh, come and live in this shelter and we'll teach you how to be a good mom we'll give you free room and board and we'll like train you in a job and in return like hopefully you'll develop maternal instincts and you won't like give your child to the state orphanages. Um, so you can see how this relates to ideas about like reproductive politics and what types of people should be mothers or like how to train women to be good mothers. Um, 
And then the third organization that I uh, am spending a lot of my time researching and like writing about is this leadership development program for young girls. So these are young girls who, um, rather than finishing high school, they um, they instead choose to go to trade schools, usually in hospitality um, or other kind of like uh, skills like that, and um, there's a program that's specifically designed to like target these young women who are training to be cooks or like work in hospitality and um, get encourage them not to marry young and have this kind of like uh, pattern of having a lot of children and not being uh, involved in so-called skilled labor, but instead like teaching them develop or like uh, leadership skills and how to build their own businesses and how to, you know, speak English. Um, so I was involved in those three field sites, which were specific locations. And then I uh, just regularly over the 17 months that I was there because I was plugged into this giant network of um, different people thanks in part to my continued Kazakh language learning. I also regularly went to uh, LGBTQ events and um, helped organize and also participate in various feminist activist programming. Um, okay, so I wanted to show you all some of the ways or you know, like some of the, the findings of my research just as kind of like a lens for um, if you, if any of you are preparing to uh, go into academia, this might be interesting for you, or you know, just to see what potential paths are out there for you, or like what kind of research people do um, in anthropology in Kazakhstan. So, uh, uh, some of the themes are those that I referenced in the the title of my dissertation or the proposed title of my dissertation. Um, these I like images of being a good daughter and what that entails. So as probably all of you are familiar from um, the type of you know like cultural knowledge that uh, Ceci provides is there's a very important role that um, young brides play uh, in Kazakhstan as well as other places in Central Asia. So wearing this white headscarf, being very attentive to her in-laws needs, including a lot of cooking um, for all of her extended family and relatives. Um, there's also uh, the importance of being able to pour tea correctly. This is highly emphasized. And I, like when I was at all of these different events, um, you know, like in, in people's homes, I always like talked to them about how they were pouring tea and who had to pour tea and how, like um, how much tea you pour in people's uh, like individual cups, indicating how much you like the guest or how welcome they are or how attentive you're seen as being like in terms of, um, your your like status as a good um, young bride. And then in this artistic rendering on the right, you can see um, what I've also determined as kind of like the, the flip side of like the good daughter, which is the fear of being um, a potentially like shameful or um, or like shameless, actually, um, young woman. So someone who um, is wearing short skirts or um, isn't respectful to her elders, who isn't complying with all of these ideas of you know hospitality and respect toward elders. Um, and this this is like one of the factors when uh, bride kidnapping happens, which is not incredibly common in Kazakhstan, although it does happen in some of the southern regions, but um, there's this idea that um, it will be a like shame to your family if you um, don't get married to the, the person who kidnapped you um, and wanted to make you his wife. So um, for instance, in some of the mommy homes where I was doing research, some of the women who were living there um, decided to live in the, the, the 
shelter for young unmarried women because um, they had gotten pregnant out of wedlock and uyat uh, so you know like they couldn't go back to their home villages or like live with their mothers uh, or their parents um, because of the shame of this out of wedlock marriage and so one option for them was to live in these mommy shelters. Okay, um, so in addition to the good mothers, sorry, I'm going to speed up a little bit. Uh, we also, or the the subservient and like good daughters, we also have the good mothers. So this, um, you know, relates to being able to perform a lot of tasks of domestic labor in even in different difficult conditions, making sure that you are incredibly caring and giving to your children, um, that you provide them with good housing and other resources. So there was a string of um, protests that happened in Kazakhstan last spring. And um, the image to the bottom right is from that where a bunch of mothers went out with their children to protest in front of municipal buildings um, around Kazakhstan, mostly in the large uh, city centers. And they were saying, we're sick and tired of waiting in, uh, in for like the, the services that we should be given by the state. Why aren't we uh, eligible for apartments? Why aren't we getting more benefits for our children? Um, like, especially if we have children with disabilities. And so this protest was actually incredibly effective um, because women were like this type of activism was spurred by the the centering of these women's motherhood as like an important characteristic for them caring about their children and thus the state needing to care for them because of this maternal instinct that they had that was being unfulfilled by estate provisioning. Um, one kind of a uh, very stark example that I'd like to give of how reproductive politics and like this uh, government agenda for um, encouraging uh, motherhood or like seeing motherhood as a, a paramount good in certain settings um, in terms of like social positioning in Kazakhstan uh, is there was a protest um, which maybe you all heard about which was during um, last year's marathon in Almaty, where these activists held up this giant banner which said, you can't run away from the truth. And it was protesting against um, the snap election, which happened after Nazarbayev stepped down from office and um, the election of his handpicked, uh, like next in line to become president. So, uh, during this protest, one of the people who wasn't even uh, holding the banner, but who was filming the protest, uh, who then was a 27-year-old artist and activist, she was um, detained. The, the two people who held the banner were put in prison, and actually one of them has... Uh, one of them was sent to the army and drafted. The second one was released. She was a woman, but she is now... Uh, she's been rearrested. Um, about a month ago, and she's still in jail currently. Um, but the the woman who I'm talking about in this case is um, someone who was just filming the event, um, and she was fined um, and called to court uh, and issued a penalty of, um, let's see, what was it? Um, oh, wait, oh, yes, of 20... Um, like monthly, like the, the monthly rate of uh, what an average citizen makes. Um, so a somewhat significant portion of money uh, for filming this event. However, um, when the court, when she appealed, uh, the court gave her a discount um, of 30% because she was pregnant. And they determined that because she was pregnant and was like a future mother of, you know, presumably, you know, like a, a new Kazakh citizen, she would get a discount from her political activism or, you know, like from the penalty of her political activism. And which I think is just like a, a wild idea <laughs> that you could get a discount for activism because you're a mother. Um, 
And then this this photo, which I'm showing here, is of uh, two of the protesters who were in the court hearing, um, and they wrote uyat, so shame, uh, on their mouths and taped it shut as part of an, another art protest. Um, Sarah, do you think we have enough time to show a short video? What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think let's do it. Okay. Um, so I, I just wanted to like introduce this idea of so what, because always when you're doing like research, people are like, well, so like, what does it matter that this is happening? You know, like what's going on? And I'm thinking that I like the, the type of research that I'm doing can be seen as a call for increased scrutiny in general to how we can be like sensitive to different contexts in terms of um, intervening in like very specific ways to uh, like like intervention programs into different people's lives and taking into consideration you know gender and other different factors and like this the context of the uh, situation like the situations that people are in and I just wanted to close with a, um, a video from um, maybe you all have heard of or listened to Zidia Selbik so she's a Kyrgyz activist um, a 20 year old um, singer and she received death threats for her first um, video, which is called Kuz, uh, in which she was wearing the um, outfit that you see on the screen because people said that it was, you know, like, um, how could she as a good Kyrgyz woman wear a bra and like broadcast this image of Kyrgyz women to the world? Um, but in the song, which I'm going to play for you, um, she talks about, uh, political activism and like what kinds of promises we have for a future, you know, like looking to what we can do um, as individuals when faced with corruption. Um, and so now I'm going to, I'm going to stop sharing this and then I'm going to share my computer screen, uh, my um, browser. Sorry, just a second. Okay. And those of you who are learning Turkic languages, maybe you can recognize some of what she's saying here.
All right, uh, thanks everyone for letting me go over. Um, hopefully that'll be some food for thought in our discussion. Yeah, thank you. And I was gonna ask if you could type the artist's name into the chat. Um, that was a really interesting video. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, turn my camera back on. And thank you, Laura, for your presentation. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and take questions now for Nick, for Laura, for both of them. Um, I thank you both for those excellent presentations as well. 